For me, I don't read too many books. Uh, I like to play a lot and play uh, something out of the ordinary to get my opponent out of his comfort zone. This is The Upper Hand, a podcast series by IMC. I'm Tim Polashek, and in this podcast, I invite masters of different games to see what steps you need to take to master your favorite game. From poker to Valorant and crypto to ultra running, you'll find out how you can use theory and practice to become the best. In this episode, we're going to talk about chess. Chess has always been popular amongst game enthusiasts and has further entered the mainstream thanks to well-known shows like The Queen's Gambit. There are many championships across the world and there is lots of money to be made when you're a real pro. Last season, we talked to Bianca, a grandmaster who made her full-time career from playing chess. There are also, however, a lot of people that play professional chess alongside their full-time job, and they can become extremely successful. Murad Abdullah is a great example of this. Murad is a software engineer at IMC and also plays chess at a professional level. He's won the Scottish Championship and knows how to train to get the upper hand, even when you're also working or studying full-time. That's why I go and visit him at the IMC office to ask him about all his best tips and tricks. Hi, Murad. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Uh, so you're a full-time software engineer here at IMC, but besides that, you also play chess on a professional level. When did you get into it? Um, so I started playing chess uh, at a relatively old age uh, in chess terms. So age eight, nine, I started to pick it up properly, start playing tournaments. Really old. Yeah. So if you compare with world champions, uh, higher level players, they start at age four or five. Wow. Okay, so yeah. actually nine, eight, nine, ten is quite old for the chess world. Um, yeah. It came from sibling rivalry. Ah, really? So is that how you found out that you had that kind of talent then between playing with him? Yeah, so uh, my brother used to play in the chess club uh, back uh, back in Azerbaijan, and um, I would uh, I was kind of a naughty kid, so I, I couldn't sit down on the board and play play chess. Uh, I had too much energy, so I was often running around, uh, maybe destroying some pieces, you know, throwing the boards around. But I guess while my brother was uh, having his lessons, I started to pick up on some of the theory, some of the tactics, some of the ideas. And um, I guess from all of these uh, overhearings, I managed to pick up chess. Right, okay, so you were actually being a bit of a nuisance when you were younger and picking it up from your brother. And what actually ended up drawing, drawing you into to playing it so much? Um, I think it would be the competitive aspect of it. So I'm, I'm a pretty competitive person in general. And uh, I like the fact that uh, in chess, it's purely deterministic on the person. You know, there's not much... Uh, luck involved, there's not uh, chance involved, it's what your brain produces, so if you're smarter than your opponent, then you're going to beat him, and I like that that everything's under your control, and uh, you only have yourself to blame if you end up losing, so Yeah, so it's fully strategic, there's no, there's no real luck involved in chess yeah, There's some luck maybe in terms of uh, if you're tired and you blunder, but yeah, I think it's mostly skill And so from from the age of eight or nine when you started, how did you, how did you build up that skill? Were you playing just games? Were you playing tournaments already? 
Yeah, with chess, it's very important to uh, practice a lot. So mm -hmm. the more you play, the more patterns you build up in your head, the more experience you get with different types of positions, different structures. Um, you can learn a lot about, uh, about how to play in certain uh, positional ideas and certain tactical ideas. And as you build this database in your brain, you kind of improve over time. You build confidence and uh, you can uh, remember, you know, from a previous game what you should have done if you've analyzed your games. And this can give you an upper hand in future games. And so, yeah, for me, it was mainly playing a lot, being very active. And yeah, I had a lot of passion for chess, so I was dedicating a lot of hours to train. And what does that what does that kind of training look like? How do you train effectively? Um, so for over the board, uh, you know, when we speak in terms of chess, there's three main aspects to it. There's the opening, middle game, and end game. Um, the opening, it's relatively not so important for beginners, but uh, once you get to a higher level, you want to have a solid repertoire so that uh, the stronger opponents, they have engines behind their back, you know, they've memorized a lot of the best moves. You want to make sure that you don't get a bad position from the opening. So it's important to have a, a nice, solid uh, outstanding from there. Mm -hmm. Middle game uh, consists of, I guess, positional and tactical styles. So you can have a slow, long game, you know, squeeze your opponent down like a python, or you want to be tactical, you want to breathe fire on the board, quickly kill your opponent. There's two different styles. Um, depending on which one's your strength or your weakness, maybe you want to address your weakness, maybe you want to develop your strength. You can focus on those two areas. And the end game, there's a lot of theory. Um, it doesn't change over time. You know, it's kind of like math theories. It's not going to A squared plus B squared equals C squared. It's not going to change over history. It's similar to end games. Some of the rook end games, they're always going to be the same. So you just need to memorize them and learn the theory. And addressing these three aspects of chess, you're going to develop as a player. And what kind of style do you prefer? Do you have a, a signature style? Yeah, mine is a bit uh, unorthodox. So uh, a lot of players, you know, they, they study a lot of literature. They, um, they study the middle games, the classics a lot. So they kind of have a more structured uh, game to them. For me, I don't read too many books. Uh, I like to play a lot and uh, uh, just play uh, something out of the ordinary to get my opponent out of his comfort zone. Um, especially nowadays with the computer and engine, a lot of players, I feel, they memorize certain structures and openings, and when you get them out, they, they struggle to think on their own. So I like to play some, I guess some would say dodgy openings, but I would say unorthodox, and mm -hmm. for me it's provided some success, but at the same time, if it's a very strong player, um, they can punish you for this. But yeah, my, my style is uh, unorthodox, hyperactive type. So yeah. it's less... Less theoretical and more based on just having played a lot of games. Exactly. So intuition based yeah. rather than uh, theoretical based. Yeah. And how many games are you playing or how many games were you playing when you were really building up to, to tournaments and competitions? I'd say when I was the most active, probably over the board. So classical games. Um, when I was young, hitting 100, 120 games a year. Wow. Yeah. And that's when you won the Scottish National Championship, right? Yeah, indeed. So um, my first championship I won in 2017. And what does that build up look like to a tournament like that? How do you manage your physical or mental well-being? Um, so I like to draw comparison probably with other sports like boxing. You know, in boxing, UFC, you kind of have a camp before a match. Um, so 
boxers, they, they start maybe six weeks before the tournament. They go to the gym, prepare, address their weaknesses. Very similar to chess, what I would do is um, maybe two months prior, I would set up a training plan. Um, luckily, these Scottish championships, they would be in the summer. So I'd finish you know, school or university and I'd have a summer break. Yeah. So I'd have a lot of time uh, during the day to dedicate. Um, so typically spending six to eight hours a day on all aspects of chess, um, addressing the opening, middle game, end game. Um, but also very important to this is the physical aspect. So um, I, I think it kind of gets uh, an oversight, but mm -hmm. especially in long tournaments, it's very important to be physically fit, mentally fit. I think it's a deciding factor in the last few rounds because everyone has a relatively good or equal level of chess once you reach a certain level. Like if you're a FIDE master, international master, when you're playing each other, you know similar things. The deciding factor then becomes about uh, who's more resilient, who's more mentally stable, and that uh, is supported by mental fitness. So I'd make sure to also be mentally fit, eating healthy, um, knowing the right uh, food to eat during a game, you know, not loading on carbs, eating protein, all that stuff. So there's a lot of uh, physical fitness element to it as well. Yeah, really interesting you mentioned that because it's not only in the sports uh, interviews that we've had, but also in the strategy games and board games and uh, video games as well, where that physical well-being has come out as being really, really important. So it's interesting. And do you do, you do that all on your own or do you have people around you or friends or trainers that can help you with that process? Yeah, it's mainly on my own, so I don't have a, a team around me. I used to have a coach um, who would address the chess part of things, mm -hmm. um, like learning openings, middle games, end games. But uh, this outside the board element, um, it's mainly been, uh, I know if I go to a tournament, it's usually my father and my mother that come with me and they ensure that I stay disciplined. So I guess they, they would be my manager. So they play this. that role for you. Yeah, exactly. And so you mentioned you had a, a coach for the training part of the of the you know chess strategies how did you how did you meet him how does that work how did you train together yeah so i've um, at the start uh, when i moved to aberdeen scotland um, i would play in the northeast junior chess association so there was a uh, lots of influential figures in terms of my career that helped me um, there was uh, sheila there was gerald lobley who uh, took me into these tournaments these junior tournaments and uh, i progress my foundation there. Um, then in, for example, in the street, uh, the shopping street in Aberdeen, there was a player at the, on the floor playing games with the public and he was uh, crushing everyone. It was a blitz game. so three Just outside the shopping center? Yeah, outside the shopping center. Yeah. He was playing uh, all the public people and he was destroying everyone. And uh, yeah, I looked at the games, it was pretty cool. I want to participate. Um, I managed to sit down, play him, and I think I gave him the biggest challenge out of everyone. Really? I was beating him at some point, but eventually he, he I think, flagged me. He, like, beat me on time. Um, but he, he could, I could see his sweat uh, dropping down. Really, in really? So uh, at that point, he realized, okay, I'm a good player, and he recommended the, the Bonacourt Chess Club. And um, I think it was the Friday night when the clubs are open. I went there, and uh, he was my first coach. And so I, I had my foundation building up from there as well. And then as I progressed, I had Andrew Green, um, who set up the Edinburgh Chess Academy. He's had a big impact on developing chess in Scotland. Uh, he was my main coach from mm -hmm. this beginner, intermediate to professional level. And then since then, I have uh, been working on my own. Okay, so you've really had a couple of people along your, along your journey as well, giving a sort of 
watchful eye or helping you get to the next stage um, with regards to strategy? Exactly. So, um, yeah, with them, I would go through the openings, middle games, end games. Naturally, as a coach, they have more experience. They're older than me. They've played more games, so they can kind of uh, show some light to where I should be going towards. You mm -hmm. know, it can save a lot of time for me trialing and erroring and uh, figuring out what's right for me. They, they can tell what my style is and recommend me things straight away. It saves a lot of time. Uh, so that's why it's important to have a coach. But uh, it's also important to also understand yourself and train with yourself because no one knows you better than yourself. And yeah, you can really focus on chess that way. Yeah, I was going to ask as well. So for people who are listening that maybe don't have a coach or don't have a coach yet, how would you recommend for them to get really good at analyzing their games? In this era, especially after coronavirus, um, especially after Queen's Gambit, with this whole Twitch uh, streaming, Online chess is a big industry now. There's a lot of resources. If you go to YouTube, you can find tons of videos on openings, middle games, end games, or very strong players. These uh, chess tournaments that happen, the candidates, the grand chess tour, there's uh, grandmasters that are commentating purely by listening to them. It's kind of a lesson you have. It's like you have a coach, you, except you're saving money. You know, It's a public commentary. Yeah. You listen yeah. to it. You listen to all the advices they give. You can learn a ton from there. There's a lot of websites, chess.com is a big one. Um, they have lessons that you can pick up, puzzles to improve your tactical ability, lots of videos, tons of resources online. Okay, so there's loads of stuff for people to get on with. For sure, yeah. If you, if you want to learn chess, you'll find a way to learn it, for sure. And so, well, we're talking about, you know, professional level, you're winning competitions, but you're actually doing this in combination with a full-time job as well. You're a software yeah. engineer here at IMC. How do you manage to balance those two things? Yeah, fortunately, this industry, it uh, kind of goes hand in hand with chess in terms of my brain doesn't go stale. Um, the, here we're doing, we work on the trading industry. There's a lot of data involved, lots of thinking, analytical skills required. So your brain is always active and you can go into chess really easily. So whether it's before starting work, training in the morning, couple hours, or after work, you go gym and then you can really delve into chess again. So the fact that the industry, it's also using your brain power a lot, it's requiring quantitative analytical skills, I think it goes hand in hand with chess. So sure, there's not enough time as compared to a holiday, but uh, it's not too bad, yeah. Okay, yeah, so intellectually the two mix really well. Yeah. Uh, and are there skills that you've learned in chess that are really useful in your in your job here or vice versa? Uh, for sure. Um, here in chess, you have a clock, for example. Uh, you have to play under time constraints. And um, it's most often the case that you become under time pressure. And in chess, there's billions and billions of different possibilities. Um, I think more atoms in the universe. There's more moves in the chessboard wow, than yeah, atoms yeah. in the universe. So you need to be able to navigate through this mass amounts of data within a short amount of time. And in trading, this is exactly what happens. You have tons of data coming in front of you. You have to be very sharp. You need to know what the best decision is within a short amount of time, or else the opportunity goes away. So it's, uh, yeah, very similar. Time pressure, thinking sharp, being active. I think they're very close to each other. So being able to perform well under pressure, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And self-discipline and, and training? Yeah, so in trading, you know, if you make a bad trade, you lose money, it's yeah. important to stay focused, not to get down. Similar to chess, it can be even worse. You spend eight hours a day um, 
moving pieces on the board, you could say, you know, if you end up losing, what did you gain at the end of the day? You, you just played the moves and you lost. It, it can be a bit... Uh, you have to find... It, yeah, it can hurt your ego a bit. It can hurt your, you know, maybe if I was working, I would have earned money. You know, with chess, you're just moving the pieces. So uh, you need to be mentally resilient, you know. You're dedicating eight hours playing game. If you lose, you don't have anything to show for it. But it's important to not get down from that. It's only a loss if you don't learn from it. Mm -hmm. And as long as you learn from it, and uh, you can make the mistakes not happen again and uh, win the next game, then everything's good. Everything's good. Yeah. Do, so do you have a personal strategy or method for making sure that you're still feeling good even after you've lost? Yeah, um, it's mainly doing something that's completely polar opposite of like thinking or using your brain. Yeah. Um, so actually a big help for me in the Scottish Championships was... Uh, in summer, there's Love Island in UK. So in uh, the TV program, the TV program, yeah. yeah. So in 2017, when I was playing uh, the, the chess tournament, I, I lost one of the games in round five. I won the tournament with eight out of nine, but I lost one game in the middle of the tournament. I was very disappointed, and I didn't want to look at chess. I didn't want to study. I didn't want to go to gym or anything. And fortunately, Love Island was on, so <laughs> I just decided to watch Love Island, completely forget about anything chess related, and then. Yeah, I came back, won five games in a row for the next five days. So it's completely switching off from chess, it helped. Well, that's a strong recommendation for everybody yeah. listening to binge watch a TV show. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. And I think we're going to get into um, one of your favorite uh, moves, one of your favorite openings, right? The, yeah. what was it called? The Sicilian Dragon. Sicilian Dragon. Before Murad and I are going to dive deeper into his favorite chess opening, let's first take a look at some theory on openings. Every chess game consists of three parts, the opening, the middle game, and the end game. In the opening, you set up your pieces and that determines your position for the rest of the game. That position can have a significant impact. Beginners are mostly told to focus on their middle and end game, but you should still think about your openings if you really want to win. First of all, you need to learn about the opening principles Control the center, develop your minor pieces, and try to develop a threat. You should make sure that you not only memorize these principles, but that you really understand what they mean. When you're confident in your principles, you can move on to opening theory. It's one of the most studied parts of chess, and it refers to sequences of moves that have been researched by chess players and computers on their workings. Many new players are often wondering how they can study opening theory and how much they need to study. It can be quite intimidating to see all the opening theories out there. Luckily, there are a lot of books, courses and videos that can guide you through the world of openings. It's also smart to use databases as a tool. In these databases, they collect all possible openings and they sort them by rating level. You can look up simple openings and see how they work, but you can also look at openings played by masters to get some inspiration. There are paid databases like Chessbase, but also free ones like Lee Chess. No matter how much you study, the most important thing to understand is why moves are made. You can learn as many openings as you want, but if you don't have a deeper understanding of why you're moving a certain piece, then you won't be able to outsmart your opponent. Now that we know how we can study opening theory, Let's go more in-depth on one of Murad's favorite openings, the Sicilian Dragon. Uh, so 
funny story about this is um, when I was just starting to play, uh, I saw a book, uh, How to Play the Silent Dragon. I saw a dragon picture on the book. Yeah. Obviously, it attracted my attention. Um, but I was recommended not to take it. It's a bit of a dubious opening, I guess. They have, it has a reputation. But uh, there's a dragon in front of the picture, right? So yeah, especially I, if someone tells you not to do it. You have to do it. You've so. got to do it, right? So, yeah, I picked it up, and it's been my main opening till now. Um, so I guess I can... So does that is that part of the breathing fire on the board? Yes. Sicilian dragon. Exactly. So uh, from the characteristics and nature of the game, yeah. um, there's a, the bishop that's staring down the diagonal. This gets treated as the as a dragon that breathes down the board. Okay. And it leads to a lot of uh, a lot of tactical positions, a lot of crazy games. You know, usually the game ends fast because one of the opponents they can't handle the pressure. There's too much tactics involved. Um, it's not the Python strangling type position that we referenced before. It's more die or die trying. Okay, and so why do you like this opening so much? Um, it's just more my character, I'd say. Yeah. Um, I don't have too much patience to you know, start maneuvering my opponents, you know, trying to grind them down 100 moves. I like to finish it fast, um, get it over and done with, keep the energy for next games. And uh, yeah, I'd say also if you come with confidence, if you come with, uh, if you play fast, strong moves, then your your opponent kind of crumbles in that pressure as well. It's nice to have that. It's nice to see that happens. If yeah, that's gonna be a good feeling. So yeah, I, I like it. Aligns with my uh, character a lot. Okay, great. Well, do you mind showing me what it looks like? Sure. Um, so it uh, kind of depends on White. He has to go into the Sicilian, and the way to do this, they have to begin with E4. Yeah, um, so pawn to e4. Pawn to e2 or e2 to e4. Uh, black responds with the, so this is the Sicilian defense, uh, c7, c5. And uh, white plays knight f3, developing the knight. Black plays d6. And then white goes for the open Sicilian with d4. And yeah, the nature of this is that it's going to be tactical. There's a lot of Sicilians that can come out of this, the Nidorf, the Shevenigan, and uh, obviously the dragon as well. Black has to recapture, white recaptures as well. Black plays knight f6, uh, attacking the e4 pawn. Yeah. White defends with knight c3. And here we have the move that characterizes the dragon with pawn to g6. And it's named uh, the Sicilian dragon because of the Drake constellation, I think, you know, the stars, the yeah. way they're aligned. It's also in the same like shape the as the pawns. Ah, yeah. yeah. So that's where the dragon name comes from. Um, there's a lot of uh, moves that White can play here, a lot of structures he can go for. Unfortunately, he can also choose a positional aspect, kind of uh, go for a, a scared approach, you know, castle to king side, castle to safety. Mm -hmm. um, but if White is also feeling adventurous, then he can go into what's called the Yugoslav variation. And uh, this is characterized by bishop e3, bishop g7. Um, this is the dragon bishop that we referenced. Yeah. Uh, as you can see, there's a very long diagonal from a1 to h8. This is where all the action occurs. Okay. And uh, yeah, this and is where the bishops and knights across the whole. Yeah, there's every piece is going to be here. Um, even the king is going to castle queen side eventually, so the king is going to be on the on this side of the board. So there's going to be a lot of action on this diagonal, and this is where the reference of breathing fire down the board comes from. Um, yeah, that's the dragon bishop, and I guess you can say that's the den. That's, that's the in. den. Yeah. <laughs> Surrounded <laughs> with h7. So this is like a setup for yeah. how you might want to then finish. 
Yeah, if uh, if White goes for passivity and uh, just sits still, he's going to have a very tough life ahead of him. Yeah. So he needs to make sure that he's very active as well. Once one player doesn't quite have the heart for continuing it, and as soon as one player falters, it's going to be game over. Yeah. So it's a game of whoever can keep up the longest of attacking, they're going to prevail. A game of confidence. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much for showing me this as well, and it's been wonderful hearing about your experiences over the last few years as well. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Murad. Thank you. When Murad is preparing for a tournament, he makes sure that he's physically and mentally ready. He starts training six weeks in advance and is able to work around his full-time work schedule. He loves to play the Sicilian Dragon, an opening that will confuse your opponent, which gives you the opportunity to get the upper hand. In the next episode of The Upper Hand, we meet Murad Abdullah, a software engineer at IMC and Scottish national champion at chess. We delve deeper into his love for the game.